0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com code LISTEN.
2: Hello folks, welcome to Naval Month on the Napoleon Assist, as voted for by my Patreon supporters. I've got a quick favour to ask. If you enjoy the episode, drop a like, subscribe, and how about sharing or leaving a review? It'll take you a few seconds, but it makes a huge difference in helping to reach a wider audience. As ever, if you're interested in going even further to support the podcast, check out the links in in the description to discover how you can become a supporter, the perks that are involved, and how you can leave a one-off tip. Thank you all for your incredible support as we close in on 75,000 downloads, and enjoy the show. (music) Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. We've been having a little bit of a giggle whilst we've desperately tried to solve audio and calendar clashes and all kinds of uh, things that really indicate how brilliantly prepared these podcasts always turn out to be, um, such as the quality that you get here on The Napoleonicist. Joining me to talk us through what we're going to discuss this evening, which essentially is one of those great debates, right? So you folks seem to enjoy these, they're some of the most listened to episodes where I bring together a series of experts and we have a big argument about a particular topic. The focus for this one is most significant naval figure, deliberately not greatest, most significant, in order to give some people a fighting chance over the course of proceedings. Joining me therefore is Jacqueline Writer, a guru on amphibious operations, I did consider calling you the Princess of Popham, um, but I, I decided that that probably wasn't a great um, title. Uh, however, you are the custodian of Popham's ghost, ghost and uh, Jacqueline, as folks will know from a previous episode, is author of The Late Lord, which is on the Earl of Chatham and the kind of shenanigans surrounding the Volcron expedition. Jackie, I know you're having some audio issues, but we'll just make people ignore those. How are you doing? It's great to see you again.
1: I'm fine, thank you. I hope
2: you can hear me. We can, just about. We also have Jimmy Chen, who is a Napoleonic commentator on pretty much anything to do with Russia. If you start up a conversation on Twitter, Jimmy's likely to turn up and go, yes, but Russia, um, which often is, is, is valid. Um, but I do like to rip him about it. He's also the guy who runs Napoleonic Impressions, many of whom will have bought merch of these cartoons on the side of mugs and Salamanca chicken on the side of mugs and other things on the side of mugs, like penguins dressed up as Napoleon. Um, so check out his
3: website. Jimmy, good to see you again. How are you doing? Uh, very good Good to see you. I mean, I feel like a bit of an imposter on these uh, on these episodes uh you know in the presence of uh, several published authors and meanwhile i'm the bozo who just happens to have translated a few things from russian and happens to sell penguins
2: hey hey everyone's got to make a living i make a living out of begging people to pay me to make this podcast so you're perfectly entitled to get people to pay you to stick penguins on mugs that's completely valid Um, career plan as far as I'm concerned because if I can make this fly then you know what you're doing is is far more professional and lastly we also have a guy who's actually here on his birthday now he didn't tell me about this when um, we scheduled this recording but I kid you not rather than go out and party hard as perhaps might be his way uh, he shakes his head. Uh, Josh Proven, the master of adventures in Historyland, is joining me from a hotel lobby, no less, because the Wi-Fi has died in his house. So on top of scheduling to record for you folks on his birthday, he's gone out of the house to a hotel lobby and he's borrowing somebody's Wi-Fi. Talk about dedication to the cause. Josh, as folks will know, wrote Wild East and also Bullocks, Grain and Good Madeira. He's the master of adventures in history land. As I say, that brilliant kind of vlogging interviewee general thing about history stuff, which is a highly technical term, but I know is accurate. Josh, great to see you again, my friend. Happy birthday. And we will charge our glasses to you in just a moment. But how are you?
4: I'm doing well in the spirit of Navy, Naval Month. I'm forging ahead against all all opposition to, 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 to make port today.
2: And I, I think you've succeeded. I would like to respond with a suitably naval kind of comeback, but I, I, I don't know enough kind of navally terminology to succeed um, with that. So um, uh, I, we'll I, just move swiftly on.
4: Am I actually the sea dog here amongst us? <laughs> <laughs> you've got the
2: ponytail. I mean, uh, I'm not sure Jimmy could pull it off, if I'm being honest. so Jimmy Jimmy looks unimpressed. Jimmy seems to reckon he can rock the ponytail. Are you planning to
3: unleash your inner,
4: uh, inner Captain Jack?
3: 150 years ago would have been the law. or at least, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh,
4: now we're getting Chinese history.
2: <laughs> let's, let's move on, shall we? Because um, that, that's a, an interesting rabbit hole, but it is a rabbit hole nonetheless that isn't going to help us uncover the most significant naval figure. Now, I pick most significant deliberately rather than greatest gives you more of a scope to make an argument about what we might consider to be significant, inverted commas. Same rules as before, five minutes, and then we will basically bully you um, and mock your decision and um, ask probing and willfully difficult questions, right? So let us start with, let's go to the birthday boy, first of all. Josh, kick us off.
4: Okay, so... I'm very glad that you chose the word of the wording that you chose to uh, frame this subject with because some people will disagree vehemently with my choice and some people will just not understand who he is. Uh, He's he, my choice for significant naval figure is a strange one in that he was an admiral who won no naval battles and never commanded a battle fleet was better known for his terrestrial commands during the 1812 campaign than for the naval reforms he carried out that formed the bedrock of Russian maritime administration into the 20th century. His name was Pavel Tichagov, and he almost captured Napoleon. Pavel Tichagov was the son of a quite a well-respected Russian admiral who, uh, had great success against the Swedish, in the Russia-Swedish War. Uh, he, was a, he was in the military from a lot, young age, I believe uh, 1777 is when he was uh, in the Preobrazhansky lifeguard. And he moved on from there to be basically an aide to his father, moving into uh, the, I believe it's called the Marine Battalion of the, I think it was the Imperial Guard, but it's a little confusing to me. The scale of the Russian Imperial Guard is somewhat overwhelming. Nevertheless, he became a ship captain and quite a competent one. He fought against again against the Swedes uh, under his father. It was decorated by Catherine the Great, so obviously he knew his way around the ship and how to fight in a battle. He was no slouch. And strangely enough, as, as you will see, he's actually, I, th- I think I can make a case for him being one of the most significant naval figures, certainly in Russian history at this point, and by extension, therefore, in the history of the Napoleonic Wars. He had the distinction of having an education at the uh, uh, a a British education, actually, because he went abroad to study at the um, the uh, Naval College. And while there he picked up a lot of you know practical practical administrative ideas that he could then transport back to russia this is quite common for for russian students traveling abroad at this time they, you know the aristocracy send their kids abroad they get they get an education then they come back and they apply it into the czars uh into the into the state unfortunately for pavel Tchagov. The Tsar at the time was Tsar Paul, and for, un, uh, for obscure reasons, Tsar Paul took a dislike to Pavel, uh, stripped him of his rank, and dismissed him from the service. Uh, very quickly afterwards, he was reinstated, uh, made an admiral, and then thrown into the Peter and Paul fortress for the obscure reasons. We have now reached 1799. After Zar Paul, obviously be after Zar Paul was told, you know, this Pavel Chichagov guy, he's not that he's not that bad a guy. Why is he in prison? After Zar Paul listened to this advice and got him out of prison, Paul said, Water under the bridge, Pavel old boy. Carry on doing admiral things. Um Things, things turned around dramatically because Chichagov was an incredibly intelligent man. He had all these amazing ideas of how he wanted to change things. He was a reformist. He was something of a liberal. And that meant that when Tsar Paul died under mysterious circumstances and Alexander the took over, these guys had a meeting of the minds, so to speak, Alexander really liked Pavel Tchagov and made him his uh, uh, naval minister, minister of the Marine, whichever you would like to call it. And here, Pavel was unleashed on the Russian Navy on this edifice that was ridden with corruption, deeply uh, inefficient, building the wrong kind of ships, didn't have a proper structure uh, or Sort of manuals uh, of of, of uh, that told officers what their duties were in a particular circumstances as respect to the service in general, and he attacked them all he He went at almost everything, whether it was from corruption to uniforms to the daggers that the men were wearing, and especially to uh, and especially to port authority. the reforms he actually it, affected in many of the, in Russia's seaports and across the Navy in general, lasted into the 20th century. But as I said, nobody outside of Russia remembers him for the sterling work he did, reforming the Russian Navy, because, and we circle back now to that, 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 that hook I gave you about him almost capturing Napoleon, Pavel Tichagov is more famous because in 1812, he was commander of the third Western army that marched to the Berezina from the Danube and obstructed Napoleon's route to safety. Why is an admiral, a, 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 a marine animal in charge of, an, of a fleet? Uh, not in charge of a fleet. Why is he in charge of an army? Well, because he's a friend of the Tsar and he made a lot of enemies. He was a, he was a brilliant man, but, he, like a lot of brilliant men, he didn't get on with people. So uh, uh, in, in addition to the slew of enemies he made in St. Petersburg, his wife died, his English wife, who uh, is a big part of his story with Tsar Paul, but we can't get into that. Uh, and he took a extended leave of absence, but Tsar Alexander found him indispensable Chichagov was one of the one of the few people who he would meet every day regularly and he said no come back to service Pavel take command of the armies um, in the east fighting the Turks I need I need you to watch my I need you to watch my rear while I go and deal with Napoleon it's about 1811 now and Chichagov goes over there and he has these grand ideas I will I will conquer Constantinople uh, while I'm here, uh, and um, just just because you know that's what Russians do. Unfortunately, for Pavel Tchogov's grand ambition to conquer, to reconquer Constantinople, um, he he ticks off another guy called Kutuzov, and Kutuzov royally undermines him. Takes away any chance of glory against the Turks and leaves him sitting, stewing out, uh, out here, looking at the Caucasus and the Black Sea, thinking, "Well, what do I do now?" Well, Alexander has the answer, because it turns out I need a general to take to take your battle-hardened to take your battle-hardened troops over. Over to, the, uh, over to the west because you know Napoleon's invading and there's a lot of Frenchmen in Russia now, so I could use a lot of troops. I could use some of your boys. So Chichaakkov becomes a general. He becomes a general. He marches out, joins up with what is called the Third Western Army and, a, and a general, uh, general Tuchkov, I believe. Uh, no Tomasov, General Tomasov, and he becomes overall commander for reasons. And you'd think he would do a bad job, but Chichagov loved to research and he studied how to run an army essentially and he impressed a lot of his officers by actually you know, doing a capable job of uh, given, the brief he was, given the brief he was given. And this in- basically included making sure that the Austrians didn't suddenly have a massive Napo- fit of Napoleonic fervor and uh, help and just drive into Russia. It was to make sure that the French cause in the Balkans and around the southern border of Russia stayed far back. He did this. He did this very well. And he marched on Minsk, took a massive French depot that was very, would have been very useful to Napoleon, and then forced march to the Berezina where he beat Napoleon to the bank of the river at a place called Barisov. He took this place, there was some skirmishing. He managed to hold his side of the river. And here is where history could have changed. This is where history not only of Pavel Chichagov could have changed, but the history of Europe because he had the power and the means to literally stop up napoleon's army in russia like as if he was the as if he was the uh, barrel head on a cask unfortunately by this point he'd lost several good reliable army commanders who knew how to do combat things with ground troops and everybody in the russian army thought napoleon was going to go in the opposite direction and as one commentator said if some of the most intelligent brains in the russian army thought napoleon was going south pavel tchetchago was probably not going to be the guy who said no he's going to go north napoleon went north pavel tchetchago went south and you have the crossing of the verazina and Napoleon escaped, but for a tiny instant, like Schrodinger's cat, Pavel Tchagov's cat, there was a moment where he could have actually, this admiral, just the insanity of this, this admiral could have captured Napoleon Bonaparte and ended the war right there. As it was, fatefully, Tchagov did not do this, and his previous sentiments as to the, the worthiness of Napoleon came back to bite him in the butt. Likewise, all his enemies in St. Petersburg came out and said, oh, the man's a dire traitor, a and Francophile. And the, obviously he just let Napoleon go. And so he ended up in exile in Paris, probably didn't help his case, but he ended up in exile in, uh, in Paris where he lived a fairly long life. Was eventually uh, denied his citizenship because of a, I believe, a law put in by the following czar who said you could, you can't be a Russian if you live five years outside of Russia or something like that. And he died in Paris. This is my unbreakable offering as to the most significant, uh, as to uh, uh, not the most significant naval figure of the Napoleonic Wars, but a significant figure in the Napoleonic Wars. A man who despite the, despite the ridiculousness of his career did come within an inch of greatness. In everything he did up to that point, he did it incredibly well. The reforms he put into the Russian Navy lasted longer than he lived and into the 20th century. And, and not a lot of credit is given to reformers like Pavel Tchagov. And it is because of him that the Russians maintained a fleet right up to the stage where the british said we're really afraid of the russian fleet in sevastopol you know by the way pavel Tchagov made that a military base we have to go and invade we have to go and invade the crimea to keep turkey safe pavel Tchagov is not well known he's reviled and i think these two things are unjust and i think he should be recognized as the most significant russian admiral of the Napoleonic Wars.
2: There's a reason why Jimmy just spat his tea across the webcam there, which we will come onto in just a moment. We did discuss before this, whether I was going to be nice to you by virtue of it being your birthday. (laughs) Um, The answer to that question is is no, I'm not. (laughs) Because this is the Napoleonicist, and I don't do being nice. Nice pitch. However, th- th- there is a but and it's a big but. So he aims to conquer Constantinople,
4: but fails. He Point of order, he could have. He was undermined. So he didn't actually get to try. So I don't think that counts.
2: But the point is that he has the same and he doesn't achieve it. He could I'm have so captured you to
3: bring that up yeah. <laughs> many 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 russian generals and admirals have had the objective of capturing constantinople and failed so i, I mean well
4: at least yeah. he's consistent then um i have to fight i have to fight for this guy zach i have to fight for this
2: guy <laughs> uh, and and that's fine but I, I haven't finished so he aims to con- okay. conquer constantinople but doesn't. sure 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 he could have captured napoleon but didn't uh-huh. um I like what you say about, you know, significant reform within the, the Russian Navy, points there, definitely, but we've got to think about this from a significance thing. So he doesn't achieve the things that could have won him significant fame and a legitimate claim to major significance in the course of European history. Um, Significant within the Russian Navy, yes, but my question then becomes, how important are those reforms in terms of what the Russian Navy can then do over the course of the Napoleonic era?
4: Okay, well, um, fair points, some of them. I will battle you to the death, but it is unfair. To say that he failed to, con- to conquer Constantinople because it's something he did. But by, the, by virtue of the fact he was unable to embark on the campaign at all, means that that cannot be held against him. Secondly, <laughs> addressing the main point, Russia's capacity to meaningfully affect. The maritime situation in the Napoleonic Wars is quite small. Their main objective is to is to be able to operate within the Baltic, essentially, and obviously their their trade routes in the Pacific and across the Arctic and things like that. Now, Pavel Tchogov's reforms allow them to keep fleets in the water. It, under Pavel Chichagov's uh, term as Minister of the Marine, the Russians circumnavigate the globe for the first time. They also, as I've said before, are imbued with a, with a new what you what, what the reformists would have called a new professionalism and, a, and an awareness of the traditions of the Russian Navy which he puts directly into the core curriculum of all the cadets, which again, in the cadet school, he, he, he encourages most of them to travel abroad. But this is, this is the thing. His effect on the Russian Navy and the Napoleonic Wars is massive. And the problem is that it's difficult for that to be seen because the Russian Navy is not the French Navy, or the Spanish Navy, i.e. directly opposed to the British Navy. And nobody cares what say the Danish were doing or the Dutch were doing or the Swedish were doing or the Russians were doing because the Royal Navy weren't fighting them.
2: I mean, the British Navy cares what the Danish Navy are doing because we go and steal all of their ships in 1807 at Copenhagen. Of course. But the, Having previously but, 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 gone but, and walloped but, them in 1801 but, under Nelson. Sincere apologies course. to the Danes for the fact we were absolute pigs <laughs> on both occasions.
4: Uh, well, you see, that I could bring up the little boat war there in, in defense of, of, of the Danish. But anyway, um, the, this is the thing, though. This is a very valid point look at who you're looking at here. It's the lens of the Royal Navy. If it's not in their lens, nobody cares about it. And apart from a short period where the Russians were looking a little scary, um, the Royal Navy didn't give them a lot of time. However, significantly, a lot of people directly mentioned to as being a man of incredible importance in terms of diplomacy between 1807 and 1811. Most French diplomats who were at work between Paris and Moscow and St. Petersburg mention him as being a very important person to know and deal with. So I think there is a case for him here on an international scale. And the problem with quantifying Russia's role in the maritime conflict, as opposed to say, even the, to, to even the smaller nations that, like the Swedish and the Danish and everybody else, shouldn't detract from the fact he's a very important figure.
2: All facetiousness aside, I certainly see the case that he is a significant yeah. naval figure. I'm with you there, absolutely. Um, and and a, part of the reason that I embrace the idea that you know, we talk about, not one, but as well, as spoiler alert, Jimmy's gonna talk about Russia here, uh, this evening, because um, you didn't see that one coming, um, this is why I was keen that we considered two Russian naval figures, because I think it is important, as you say, to take us out of that lens of the Royal Navy and look at other perspectives. I'm just not sure the case has been made for most significant, but who knows? Perhaps you yeah. might end up. This,
4: this is, I mean, let's that's I mean, let's remember. I could have answered
3: those questions a lot more.
4: Of course. Oh, of course come could on, have. Jimmy. Of course you could have, Jimmy. But then again, that's, <laughs> the, that's your bag, isn't it? But this is the thing. Mm. You cannot discount someone. If if, if Pavel Tchaga was a general, then you would not be able to discount him so easily, given the importance of the Third Western Army in 1812. think True you know <laughs> <Brushing>
2: acceptance <laughs> yeah. of that from jimmy let me open it up because we we have been talking about this one for a while and, and we do need to to move on uh, jackie have you got any queries any rebuttals anything you want
4: no, to tip in probably in? probably many <laughs> oh, i
1: don't really have any queries or rebuttals i'm just gonna you know um I like the idea of a naval man going on shore. I'm going to talk about that shortly. <laughs> <laughs> naval, man, naval man being where they shouldn't be. That's that's my bag.
2: <laughs> this is Very what right. gets you out of bed yeah. in the morning, admittedly. Yeah.
1: Um, so I, okay. I love breaking the rules. It's great.
2: <laughs> so you got a free ride from Jackie, and I don't think it's just on the grounds that it's your birthday either. Genuine <laughs> uh, approval there. Jimmy, I'm going to let you have one rebuttal or question rather than 30,000, which I'm sure you would be more than capable of achieving uh, if I were to set you that goal. But one point or or question or or counter argument you want to make.
3: I Actually, just one clarification on whereabouts the Russian Navy was operating, because this this is fair, this is fair. Russia did have extensive interests uh, in the in and around the Mediterranean, mostly the Eastern Mediterranean, but every now and then, again... Which, coincidentally, entering. Pavel T'Chaga was responsible for. <laughs> Up to a point.
4: Black Commander of the Black Sea Fleet, Jimmy. Deal There's, with it. Yes.
3: yes it Commander of the Black Sea Fleet after Ushakar. <laughs> well,
4: you, you you get to talk about Ushakar in a second. Spoiler alert. <laughs>
2: yeah. I, yeah. I have never known such an
4: acrimonious discussion (laughs) on one of these (laughs) as we've seen between Josh and Jimmy.
3: (laughs) This
4: is Uh, what happens when we bring the Russians into it. (laughs)
2: Absolutely. absolutely Point noted. Um, Can I just imagine what the two of you would have been like if we'd gone for Russia month in the end? Josh, thank you very much for that one. Next up, we are going to go to Jackie.
1: Right, well, most um, significant naval figure. Um, I don't think there are going to be any prizes for who, I, who, who I'm picking here. I'm going for Sir Popham, um, or Sir Popham. I'm still not entirely clear on that one. Um, significant rather than great. Very definitely significant, not great. Um, as uh, Sir Pulteney Malcolm apparently said, um, he would have been great uh, if he'd been honest. Uh, so <laughs> I guess that disqualifies him there. Um, why was he so significant? Well, I've I've got three um, reasons I could give for that. Um, the first one is what I would consider possibly the least significant, um, but most people will think the most significant, and that's his signal code. Um, it's certainly the thing he's most famous for. Um, And uh, it's the only claim he has to have been present at the Battle of Trafalgar. Um, However, had it not been for Popham's signal code, we would not have probably the most famous quotation of the Napoleonic Wars. And indeed, Popham dined out for years on on the story that uh, his signal was used at Trafalgar. So um, without the signal code, There were other signal codes, it wasn't the only one, however, he did make it much more rational, Um, he reduced the number of flags that needed to be used and maximized the number of messages that could be sent. Um, Some fiddling could be done, he himself fiddled on his code for decades. Um, And uh, um, it wasn't the best code in the world, um, but it was one that worked and it worked well and well enough that it was indeed um, taken on by the Admiralty as the official code. And I believe it remains so for over a hundred years. I'm not quite clear on how long yet, but um, it was used for a long time. So that was certainly his legacy. And um, come on, even Nelson would admit that it, it it's allowed him to, to, to make um, the pithiest message that could possibly be um, uh, be, be made from the uh, the Miles of a ship A second reason that i think he's uh, most significant um and i think this is more important than the signals um even though it's not a showy and it certainly doesn't you know not as colorful not as showy um is that he was an amphibious operations expert and As far as Britain was concerned, that was a very important asset to have, someone who's very good at landing troops from ships, because basically that's all that Britain did, right? Uh, For most of the war, they landed troops in various places around the globe. Um, You don't want them falling off the ship. You don't want them drowning. You don't want them being stranded in the wrong place. You want an amphibious expert to make it work. And Popham did. He did it several times because he was pretty much the only one, um, or at least the, um, uh, the most significant one um so uh he managed to save quite a lot of men from Flanders in the early 1790s um Flanders and uh, Germany at the time being mostly underwater in parts um so Popham made his name through basically building pontoon bridges in all directions um and then evacuating the troops back to Britain in a hurry again not very showy not very um, glamorous, but exceedingly important. And if he hadn't done it as well as he did, I wouldn't be talking about him now. He then went on to um, serve in various different places, mostly in Flanders. He was uh, he was big in Flanders. Um, he'd lived there for several years. He knew the terrain like the back of his hand. Um, so, uh, And because Britain spent quite a lot of time mucking about in Flanders, he was very useful there. <laughs> Um, there was Holland in 1799, um, it was obviously uh, um, Cape of Good Hope in uh, uh, 1805 and 1806, which I think um, I'm hoping that one day Josh will say something more about himself. Um, we won't talk about Buenos Aires today. Um, <laughs> and of course, um, I'm going to mention Welkerin, again, not glamorous, not gorgeous, um, a complete disaster, but the troops didn't drown, right? <laughs> so I think that was a major contribution. Um, oh, I forgot Egypt. You know, that's uh, um, that was a big one too. Um, that was and uh, landing and picking him up. Um, it was basically a human taxi service, wasn't it? Um, <clears throat> The third reason, uh, and this is, I think, even more important, is that he had, as I often say, a finger in every pie. He was part of the grand strategy. He had the big picture. Um, And although he's not traditionally... um, A lot of naval people don't like him as a naval person. um, It's partly because he had a finger in every pie. He wasn't just a naval man. He was also Um, involved in amphibious operations, but he was also a diplomatist. He was also um, um, involved in undercover operations. And of course, he was involved in planning because he had this great big picture. He didn't just think of what he was doing at that moment. He thought of what he could do next. Maybe we will talk about Buenos Aires just a little bit because, okay, sometimes it went horribly wrong, but a lot of the time it didn't Um, and he was able to
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Speak to people in power in ways that they, they quite liked because um, he had this, these ideas, these big ideas. So his patron was Henry Dundas, who was kind of the... Um, the person in charge uh, for much of the war of grand strategy. He also had the big global strategy. Um, And the two men went very well together because of this. Um, So we're talking um, things that are very, very very trendy to talk about now. So imperialist views, um, trade, because Popham, like Dundas, had this idea that if he hit the French in their pockets, they would say uncle or possibly orc because they're French. Um, and this is why you find him in all sorts of places, not just Flanders, which is where, as I said, he knew the back of his hand, but you also find him at the Cape of Good Hope, you find him at Buenos Aires, you find him in Egypt. Um, it's not, just because he was good at amphibious operations that he was sent to these places it's also because he had this grand vision and he had ideas he was able to to, to help with the planning and places like okay welcome was a conflict disaster but it was his idea so um it wasn't a small campaign it was the biggest campaign of 1809 that was you know he was important in that respect um and Holland in 1799, again another big disaster, but it wouldn't have gone as well as it, uh, uh, it wouldn't have gone the way it did without him in the sense that the alliance with Russia wouldn't have worked because he went out and he basically sweet-talked the Tsar into sending all his troops. Um, so that, I think, is is probably one of his greatest contributions. Um, you can argue the toss about whether uh, uh, the, the fact that not everything succeeded um, is uh, is significant here um i think uh, josh has already sort
2: of
1: tried to sell his his admiral on that on those grounds i'm going to say that in this case i think Popham did succeed in several respects so i think he's got one up on Chichikov i'm sorry <laughs> but that is where i'm going to stop so thank you
2: nice pitch jackie very very well done i wasn't expecting to like this one if I'm really honest with you, I expected to just kind of want to come into this. I I like the idea of trying to argue uh, that Popham is the most significant naval figure of the Napoleonic era, not least because that's exactly what he would have wanted everyone to uh, have thought and and argued.
1: That's very
2: true. (laughs) Um, But I was was kind of swayed by this more than I expected. Uh, The facetious... It in me wants to say, I mean, you kind of admitted yourself that it was basically a glorified Uber um, when it came to <laughs> dropping people off and, and picking them up in, in the relevant. You've been, um, been
4: talking to Marcus too much, referring to the Navy as a taxi service.
1: What I meant to say was that it wasn't just a glorified taxi
2: service. <laughs> But, but you did actually kind of, you made the point quite, mm-hmm. quite well. Um, I'm struck by something because I, I know what you've written already about Popham, having worked with you um, for Sword and the Spirit. Um, and you write a, a lot about how Popham sometimes doesn't get the chances that he wants or thinks he's deserved because in part he's such an abrasive individual. And so my question is kind of tied into that, which is, you talk about he's got an eye on ground strategy, unquestionably. Yes, he's got Dundas as his patron, but he falls in and out of favour, just as Dundas falls in and out of favour to a a degree. So to what extent is Popham actually listened to in order to have that significance, regardless of the fact that he's got the eye for it? Oh, he's listened to quite a lot,
1: um, increasingly um at the beginning he has to jump up and down a bit and uh, bash on the table and uh, obviously when dundas is out of office he's listened to less because uh, he's tied to dundas and um people who don't like dundas come into power like saint vincent um saint vincent if you read the um biography of uh, Popham by uh, um, I think his collateral uh, descendant. Um, you get the impression that Saint Vincent uh, actually personally had it in for him, eh, not so much. Saint Vincent didn't like him at all, couldn't, wouldn't trust him as far as he could throw him, uh, he wasn't the only one, um, but he was more in against things that Dundas um, or Lord Melville as he then was stood for, the corruption that went from Bottom to top um, of the the system, um, of which Dundas was was probably one of the uh, the uh, biggest examples. Um, so um, that was Popham. Obviously, would have thought that he was pers- personally persecuted, but he just happened to be the instrument. Um, so obviously, when Saint Vincent was at the Admiralty, um, Popham was. Well, he wasn't really employed, he had been employed by Dundas and he continued he wasn't recalled, but um, when he came back, the first thing that happened was that he was uh, under investigation for. Wow fraud Uh, that doesn't happen very often in Poffins. actually yes, it does, is it a Thursday then Poffin's being investigated for fraud, you know that sort of thing, Um, but anyway. um, So not all the time, but yes, um, not just Dundas. So Walker and 1809, that was under Castle watch. Um, Castle Raid was probably liaising with um, Dundas in some respect. I keep calling him Dundas, but, you know, they keep changing their names, these people. Um, I'll just call him Dundas, why not? Um, Probably liaising with Dundas to... um, um, so, well, he certainly was talking to him about other things like South America. Um, South America, by the way, was another thing that Dundas was very big on. Um, I haven't quite worked out whether Dundas started it off in Poppins' head or whether it was Poppins' started off in Dundas's head. Um, I really couldn't tell you, but they were definitely on the same page. Um, so um, he had a lot of influence for quite a long time. Um, it definitely... Waned after Dundas left office in 1805, um, and of course Dundas being damaged goods, Popham was also damaged goods, and he didn't help himself by uh, getting snarled up in Buenos Aires and then getting, uh, you know, court-martialed. Definitely didn't help himself there, but um, he was re-employed more than once after 1807, and that suggests that he still. Had the ear of at least some people who were in, the, in a decision making position. So it wasn't just crash and burn immediately. Um, I'm, obviously, he, he, it wasn't even a crash and burn at the end, it was more a bang and a whimper. Um, he, he, he just wasn't reemployed, and that was it. Um, and then I think after that, people were keeping him very much at arm's length. But he definitely had, for a very long time, the ear of people who were important, and that certainly allowed him to punch far above his weight.
2: Let me open it up to the floor then. Josh, any, any rebuttals?
4: Uh, no, I, I, I mean, Popham had a lot more active service uh, experience in terms of large-scale naval commands than my guy but they're quite similar in quite a lot of ways. They, they had a lot of big ideas they wanted to implement and would end up in strange places trying to do it. And in the end, going out with a bit of a whimper. Um, no, I, I think, and I also love the fact that so far we've chosen these out-of-the-way characters rather than trying to go for the, the glamorous <laughs> the glamorous ones who everybody knows about and who immediately come to mind when you think of the most significant. Uh, figure so sorry for torpedoing your idea there, there? Uh, but <laughs> uh, no no rebuttals there. I think he does deserve to be uh, a, a, known as a significant uh, figure in the Napoleonic Wars for for all of those reasons. And and uh, Jackie is a is an is an excellent is an excellent um, you know champion for for the for the good Popham.
2: See good pop-um. Oh, what I mean. <laughs> What I'm noticing here is that Jackie gave you an easy ride when it came to your individual, so therefore you seem to be returning the favour. Not that I'm suggesting that there's any foul play, but I'm wondering if you're going to give Jimmy such an easy run for his money when we come to Jimmy's uh, pitch. But before we get to that, Jimmy, have you got anything that you want to chip in on Popham?
3: I mean, just a couple of things actually. um, Josh said what I was going to say, and that there there are some sort of interesting similarities between uh, Popham and Chichagov. One just wonders, you know, Popham spent like the the remaining 15 years of his life probably, you know, having someone behind his shoulder sort of whispering Buenos Aires at him. And presumably, um, Chichagov had the same, you know, in his Parisian cafe and uh, oh, then that, no that's that that's the guy who uh, who who uh failed to capture napoleon at the beresina uh,
1: i'm not sure poppin would have cared that much i think he was very much a wash off a duck's back kind of person you have to be when you're like that you really do you, yeah. you can't just wallow in in your own iniquity um you, <laughs> you have to move on there are other countries to invade you know. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so i don't think he was that bothered <laughs>
2: I mean, you didn't want to talk about Buenos Aires, but um, I, I think I, I think we just I, I, um, I,
3: Jimmy, I just might. Jimmy, yeah, go for it. I've just I've just uh, remembered my point, which is uh, while I wouldn't agree that Popham was necessarily the most significant uh, admiral of the Napoleonic Wars, he probably did leave behind the most uh, the, the most significant uh, number of letters and.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you may be right although I have seen I mean uh, if not just talking admirals I have seen the um, uh, the Wellington archive in Southampton which certainly gives it
3: not
1: longer life. often has contributed to uh, but otherwise <laughs> gives it gives him a run for his money um yeah he was prolific prolific
2: <laughs> let me just bring in Buenos Aires just to to um, basically deflate what is no doubt <laughs> a, a swelling um, kind of sense of ego amongst the ghost of Popham right now Um at, at hearing us talk about him at such great length and in, in genuinely high esteem. Buenos Aires, it's just a bit of freebooting, isn't it? You know, it, it's it's almost, and I say emphasize almost, a bit of piracy. Look, Spanish treasure fleet, let's go get it. It, it, is, it, is it really a, just kind of as simple as that, you know, Spanish? No, we no could take it's, them. Not.
1: it's not as simple as piracy. A lot of people think it is. Um, it, it isn't. I, I get a little bit annoyed, actually, when people say that. <laughs> um, but not at you, obviously. <laughs> um, but it, it just, again, it all comes down to the big picture. And people who are going on about it being just a bit of piracy, are not getting the big picture. This is something attacking South America, attacking Spain and South America was discussed in the, in the mid 1790s as soon as Spain became an enemy. It's not something that Popham suddenly woke up one morning and thought, "Oh, oh, I can go to Buenos Aires to get all the silver." No, that that it had been discussed for years, and Popham had been involved in that in those discussions. Um, there was certainly an element of of, oh, I could get quite a lot of silver here, I can make myself quite rich. I'm sure that it wasn't entirely selfless, this, this idea that he had one morning when he woke up and thought, let's go to Buenos Aires. Um, however, it was very definitely something that, had the Pitt government still been in power when he had come back, they would have uh, upheld him, you know, they were just fortunate to the hilt. Um, because it was something that had been discussed for years I'm not absolutely convinced that Dundas and Pitt wanted him to go when he went um, I think there would have been a bit of oh my god he did what um never mind well we'll just have to go with it now um which is effectively what the government did um it was a bit of paternalism. Yeah, it's kind of what just happened? Hang on, where, he was he was here but the last time we checked it out. Uh, uh, oh, we better go and send some troops, haven't we? Oh, yeah. Um, and that's you know what he expected to happen, I think, except that he expected it to be a friendly government that did it and it wasn't. Um so that was majorly where he fell on his face. Um, apart from it all being a terrible, a terrible idea. Um <laughs> <laughs> um but no it, it wasn't just piracy um I could go on at length about this I'm not going to because um other people need to talk as well but um I'll go with no <laughs> all
2: right then that that's me told I have been put in my place <laughs> So as I dig the no, it's fine, Jackie. Jackie, I'm sorry at I me. Mean, bless her. No, this is the point of these things. I ask deliberately facetious and provocative questions, and then people give me a slap when I get it wrong. This is the this is the point of it. Um. So as I dig the flea out of my ear, um, Jimmy, take us away on on your choice. Uh, spoiler alert: we, we mentioned this already. You might have gone in lane on this one.
3: I will be championing. Admiral Fyodor Ushakov, who in my mind, and the mind of many Russians and probably many naval historians, although I haven't asked them, uh, is one of the most significant, and indeed uh, one, of the most, one of the greatest naval commanders, not only of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, but of, all, but of world history. Ushakov was born in 1745, and gradually rose up the ranks of the Russian Navy, Uh, and ended up commanding Catherine the Great's personal yachts uh, at some point in the the 1770s. In the early 1780s, he was in the Mediterranean enforcing armed neutrality against the British and after the conquest of Crimea in 1783, helped to oversee the construction of a naval base at Sevastopol for the new Black Sea fleet. And in this role, Uh, Shakov helped to introduce uh, a a range of tactical innovations in Russian naval doctrine. This included a preference for attack columns over lines, closing as quickly as possible to take advantage um, of uh, canister and musketry, uh, concentrating fire at the enemy flagship, and employing frigates as a mobile reserve to take advantage of any opportunities that may present themselves during a battle. A certain British sailor from Norfolk would employ similar tactics several years later. The Black Sea Fleet first saw action during the Russo-Turkish War of 1787-1792, as the Turks attempted to retake Crimea from the Russians. Ushakov would go on to win a series of spectacular victories during this war. At the Battle of Fidonisi in July 1788. His vanguard squadron was attacked by the Turkish fleet with a wind against them, but through effective concentrated fire, Ushakov forced the enemy flagship to withdraw before taking the initiative amidst the enemy confusion and successfully countering attacking at the head of his column. After he was promoted to rear admiral and appointed uh, to command the Black Sea Fleet, uh, in the summer of 1790, he defeated Turkish attempts to land a force uh, on Crimea at the Battle of Kerch Strait and the Battle of Tendra near Odessa. Both battles saw Ushakov attacking superior enemy forces, targeting the enemy center and withdrawing frigates from the line to, to form a reserve. And in fact, while pursued by the Russian fleet, uh, following Tendra, the Ottoman flagship uh, Kapudan Pasha exploded. Uh, almost all hands on deck lost, and uh, the uh, the Battle of Tendra was arguably Ushakov's greatest victory resulting in more than 2,000 Turkish casualties at the expense of fewer than 50 Russian dead and wounded. And for the remainder of the war, Ushakov would support General Suvorov's actions uh, in the Balkans and obviously Suvorov's uh, campaign uh, was very successful in its own right. But since this is the Napoleonicist, I'm going to focus on Ushakov's Mediterranean campaign from 1798 to 1800, as part of the War of the Second Coalition. As a result of Bonaparte's Egyptian campaign, Russia and her perennial foe, the Ottoman Empire, were now allies against revolutionary France. Indeed, the only time in history, uh, Russia and Turkey um, have been allied until uh, until uh, post-revolution. Um, Vice Admiral Ushakov was command was appointed to command a combined Russo-Ottoman fleet, and in 1798-99, this fleet successfully captured the, I- the Ionian Islands, which France had acquired from the Venetian Republic at the, Trinity- at the Treaty of Campo Formio. The highlight of the campaign was the siege of Corfu. Poufou was a formidable fortress with 650 guns and a, a 3,000 strong French garrison. At the beginning of November, uh, uh, 1798, Ushakov managed to establish a close blockade of the island and a special landing party uh, managed to establish artillery batteries along the coast and began targeting French fortifications. Over the course of the three months, uh, over the course of uh, the three following months Ushakov received additional re- reinforcements and ended up with 12 ships of the line and 11 frigates. And Ushakov knew that he had to take care of the heavily fortified uh, island of Vido, which uh, defended the approach to the um, to the main island of Corfu. Uh, he planned a daring amphibious operation uh, which was initiated on the morning of the 28th of February, 1799. Ushakov's ships began to bombard the enemy uh, batteries and fortifications, while another group of ships were detailed to prevent any reinforcements from the main fortress. Ushakov placed his flagship, the Sviatoi Pavel, within K-Shot range of the main enemy battery and destroyed it. At 11, he gave the order to to land 2,000 Marines while the ships continued the bombardment. Four hours later, Vido was captured. The Marines immediately stormed the main fortress, capturing the outer fortifications at the second attempt. The fortress capitulated a few days uh, later by agreement. The French were especially keen to surrender to Ushakov's Russians rather than the Turks, as the Russian Admiral took care to treat his prisoners well, and certainly never broke his word to deliver them to his more cutthroat allies. Not only had the siege been a successful Uh, been a spectacular success, but crucially, he had retained all his limbs in the process. The Tsar promoted him to full Admiral and the Sultan gave him a chilenk. The Allies established the Septinsular Republic, a uh, Russo-Ottoman protectorate, led by Ioannis foreign, uh, the future foreign minister of the Russian Empire, and also the future first president of Greece. After the conquest of the Ionian Islands, Ushakov sailed towards Sicily in 1799, there were two powerful fleets in the Western Mediterranean, Ushakov's Russian fleet and Nelson's British fleet. The British had been besieging Malta and there were several proposals for a joint attack on the island. Uh, But, And as a bit of background, the Order of St. John had appealed for Russian protection and had made the Grand Master, so Malta was uh, de jour Russian territory. As a four admiral, Ushakov expected to take command of a combined fleet. But Nelson, who was so full of himself, it's remarkable he remained afloat, could not bear to subordinate himself to a Russian admiral. Uh, thus, despite the two being allies, the second greatest naval commander of the age was doing his best to avoid the first. Uh, but the diplomatic difficulties with the British in general, and Nelson in particular, uh, prompted Ushakov to sail to Italy to help Savoy's Austro-Russian army secure its communications in the Adriatic and protect the army's water transport, as well as blockading the French ports. However, despite Swarov's spectacular conquest of Northern Italy, these gains could not be consolidated amidst tensions between Russia and her Austrian allies. Paul was increasingly infuriated at both the Austrians and the British, uh, despite his, uh, his friendship with, uh, with Potten. Uh, <laughs> in 1800, Ushakov was ret- was ordered to return home after Tsar Paul made peace with Napoleon. Uh, After Paul's assassination in 1801, Ushakov did not find favor with Tsar Alexander I who who preferred the likes of uh, Chichagov. In 1807, Ushakov decided to call it a day, resigned from uh, from the Navy and retired to an estate in Tambov province. He died 10 years later on the 14th of October, 1817 and was buried in the nearby Sanaxar uh, monastery in uh, Moldovia. Uh, Over the course of his career, he was undefeated in 43 naval engagements he commanded. And not only that, he did not lose a single ship in action. Now, dear, dear listeners of the Napoleonist, you have heard about Ushakov's unblemished record as a naval commander. But if there are still some of you who are not yet persuaded by my case, let me appeal to a higher authority. Some may say the highest authority. Because, you see, Admiral Shakov was no ordinary mortal. In 2001, the Russian Orthodox Church canonized Fyodor Ushakov and proclaimed him patron saint of the Russian Navy. In 2005, at the unveiling of the cathedral of St. Fyodor Ushakov at Saransk, the capital of the Republic of Moldovia, patriarch Alexios II declared St. Fyodor Ushakov the patron saint of Russian nuclear armed strategic bombers. I I I cannot spell spell it out any clearer to listeners. If you do not support Ushakov, but are instead Persuaded by my fellow panellists, not only will you be condemned to eternal damnation, but you will also find yourselves the target of Russian nuclear weapons. You have been warned.
2: Wow. Just, just, just wow. (laughs) Thank you. Firstly, serious points for the... (laughs) Just the, the the gumption with which you were Dr. Nelson. Um, I, I, I'm tempted to edit in air horn things. You know how when uh, somebody's issued a burn, you get the air horn going, Mew, meow 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 meow. <laughs> I'm quite tempted to go online and see if I can find something to edit in to, to I, do that. Um, I, I, I'm not sure I can condone you threatening the listeners, though. You know, the <laughs> listeners are the people who contribute to the success of this your show you're basically telling them if you don't support your choice they're going to be sent to hell and they will be nuked by the russians not necessarily in that order um, people can work that one out for themselves i almost wonder if the fact that he's patron saints of Russia's strategic nuclear armament is something that works against him um uh, you're not wrong <laughs> It it doesn't recommend him to the the sympathetic listener, does it? It, Serious points, though. So Siege of Corfu, significant. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, take that. Mm -hmm. An incredible record. Um, Wellingtonian-esque, he says, kind of deliberately (laughs) fishing there. I mean, there's a rabbit hole that we could go down. Um, What would my counter-argument be? I, I guess, and I'm not sure I hold this against him, is he just on the scene a little bit too late for him to have as much impact as he could have done? And I've given you a surprisingly nice question there, but I'm interested
3: in your thoughts. Do you mean too late or too early, really? Uh, because he... I mean, Alexander kind of just sort of gets rid of him and, and you don't really hear from him again. And in fact, you know, there were other Russian admirals um, who were active in the, in the Med after Ushakov. Um, so I, I'm not entirely sure what you're trying to get at. Do you, are you trying to suggest that?
2: So what I'm saying is that basically he, his career is, is kind of, he, he's too far gone in his career to have as much of an impact as he could have done, not least because he has, as you said, the legs cut from underneath him when you get the change in czars. So from what you say, yes, clearly very gifted as a commander, but actually there is perhaps more that he could have done in the Med had he been in favour um, and, and not ultimately resigned.
3: Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's not to say the Russians didn't do anything in the uh, in the Med during uh, this time. And, you know, Admiral, Admiral his, uh one of his successors, uh, had a very successful tenure as commander of the uh, Black Sea Fleet, uh, which, you know, he was still around by the time of the Battle of Navarino. So um yeah, I don't think you can really hold it against uh, Ushakov, but yeah. Uh, I would say for that for that one one campaign, uh one major one major campaign, um he certainly, you know. Deserve some recognition in, in the in the revolutionary Napoleonic uh debate. Yeah,
2: I'd agree with you actually. Um I, I must admit, I did wonder whether I was going to kind of bash you for kind of picking up somebody obscure or, or but I mean no, you you brought the A game. Um I guess the other logical question, because you went after Nelson, right? And you implied that Nelson was the second most significant. So here's the big one. Where's this guy's Trafalgar? Because that's the thing, right? You know, if if you're going to make that claim, Nelson, he takes a fleet off the table. Mm What is the equivalent?
3: The equivalent? I mean, firstly, arguably, Ushakov did not have a Trafalgar because he he was not killed um, during his his greatest hour. Um, And, you know, was not awarded the immortality that comes from being killed uh, at the moment of victory. Um but I would say that his his greatest moment uh was the Battle of Tendra and it effectively prevented the Ottomans from being able to land a fleet uh in the Crimea um which was you know their their main strategic objective and it allowed reallywarov um to shift the initiative uh from defense. To attack so yeah battle of tendra you know, 50 50 russian casualties 2000 turkish
2: okay fair enough I, i'm not sure if it quite stacks up um but i'm i'm not going to hog the floor on this one nicely done <laughs> on ushakov genuinely uh jimmy that that was a, a really nice pitch jacqueline do you want to have a have a go at undermining this one
1: <laughs> but may I just say that if um, uh, uh, the, the criterion for uh, being included in this uh, uh, run is to have uh, commander at Trafalgar can I just say that uh, the, the odds are slightly stacked against uh three quarters of this panel <laughs> <laughs> um, I, that that was interesting I, I had to say that i I, I agree with with um, with Zach I think that he's a little bit... He's more seventeen eighties than seventeen nineties, isn't he? Which I, I guess I guess he overlaps a little with. I mean, the wars.
3: I um, would suggest that's partly because Russia didn't really get in get seriously interested in the Napoleonic Wars until uh, in the Revolution Wars until the Second Coalition, and you know, therefore mm-hmm. there wasn't too much he could have done, sort of. You know, in the mid 1790s, like, you know, there was no need for him really to, to fight anyone.
1: I I'm gonna just ask, um, it's kind of an extension of Zach's question, um, but asked in a different way, which is what was his contribution to the wars in general? Um, I mean, what what makes him as a Napoleonic, or well, not a Napoleonic, but a um a French Revolutionary War period, Admiral, what makes him significant in that respect? This is probably an evil question mm. because... <laughs> well,
3: yeah, I, th- I think uh, the the Ionian campaign uh, and the fact that uh, it undermined uh, revolutionary France and, or yeah, you know, I guess, revolution concept, but still revolutionary, France at the time. Um, uh, and yeah, it's it certainly sort of cost the French a certain amount of manpower. And I think that the, the French were also in, obviously the French were also in Egypt as, at the time, as were the, as were the British. And I believe Ushakov uh, you know, while he was doing his stuff around sort of uh, the Ionian islands and Sicily and so on, uh, did try to send some ships to to help help in Egypt. I'm not I'm not sure whether they actually got there. I mean, there was probably some sort of diplomatic spat, which meant um, which meant that, that that didn't happen. I'm not entirely sure about that.
1: Thank you.
2: <laughs> and I have deliberately left Josh to the end here, so that Josh can enact revenge should he wish it's his birthday it's his privilege Josh the floor is yours
4: it is it has ever been my philosophy that uh, one displays one's power not by the taking of life but by the by the giving of it uh, which is a pompous way of going around saying that uh, I, I, I don't I don't like to criticize people you know I don't I don't like to I don't like to attack their their points even though that is essentially counterintuitive to what to my entire to, to my existence here in this in this com- in this contest of significance um, Admiral Ushakov is um by far certainly I, I agree with Jimmy that one of the one of the is a, is highly important in terms of general naval history uh And it's a shame that more people don't know about him. He is the Suvarov of the sea in that sense. Um, Both very quite similar in terms of the fact that their careers ended just before um, the most dramatic phase in European history kind of kicked off. And it's a shame for the Russian generals of, of this period that their most glamorous ones, the ones that were sort of Napoleonic in their success rates. Exit the exit the show just before Napoleon properly steps onto the stage. Um, I th- I, what I will say is, I think that Jimmy has expertly uh, set the scene for Pavel Tchagov's uh, sort of stepping into the, onto the stage. He steps into the void, left, the gaping void, I might say, left by this mammoth figure um and this is like i was saying that was his that was tichago's deal to take up battle and take constantinople sort of thing but the no um i, I can't argue with it i can't criticize it um Ushakov doesn't deserve to be sidelined by the likes of pavel tichagov um i, I love tichagov i think he's a very significant figure i think more limelight should be given to not just the tactical, and strategic brilliance of people like Ushakov, but to the reformists and the, the, reform, okay. the reformists and the you know the, the game changers who had to sit behind desks rather than standing on quarter decks. <laughs> um, but there is no doubting that he's a match for Nelson, certainly in terms of significance at a at a sort of a at a sort of a tactical level. If you want to talk like in a combat level, he's a match for Nelson. It's just, and to be honest with you, they're kind of similar in the the sort of time periods, if you want to say. If if Alexander hadn't dismissed Ushakov, he could have continued longer than Nelson mm-hmm. as an admiral. Uh, so no, uh, tops to Jimmy. You did an excellent excellent summary there and. Uh, Obviously, I'm not going to risk the wrath of God uh, or the Russian nuclear fleet. Uh.
3: Uh, well, one, uh, one point I, I might uh, add is that actually, um, as, as Josh mentioned about uh, Chichagov, Chichagov was the guy who yeah, gave some sort of general rules to the Russian Navy in Ushakov's time it was really every every admiral and every fleet for himself which is why some russian fleets were a lot more successful than uh, than others and uh, uh, but that's 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 a question of the higher ups not Ushakov himself who was just a commander at sea and uh, yeah, had mm, yeah, by, by by the time he fell out of favor he could do little about it
2: Oh. sounds like you're backpedaling to me, sounds like now that Josh has been <laughs> nice to you and killed you with kindness, you're, you're
4: pedaling way uh, back on that one, I, Jimmy. <laughs> I, also, also, Zach, also, Zach, I need I need also to just put this little bit in here, uh, I, I want, not being a Russianist myself, I can't read Russian, uh, and did not having the greatest understanding of the literature I needed to to, to give this presentation for, for Chichagov, I did rely on a translated document from Jimmy and from Alexander Mikarovizzi uh on Twitter as well. So thank you guys. And Pavel Tichago thanks you as well.
3: <laughs> he does. He should. Well he should. Oh, he should.
2: <laughs> <laughs> For technical reasons I can't bring you a fourth guest tonight as intended. So instead I'm gonna give you a few words about someone who has really been the elephant in the room throughout naval month, Horatio Nelson. Nelson is, in so many ways, a character that scarcely needs introduction. He's become synonymous with British naval power in the period, to the point of practically eclipsing most other naval commanders, of all nations actually, from popular memory. The third surviving son of Reverend Edmund Nelson, Horatio was born in Norfolk on the 17th of September, 1758. He always seemed to be keen to go to sea. Thanks to the early patronage of his uncle, he was gaining seafaring experience at the age of 13, by no means unheard heard of, in that era. In 1773, he was involved in an expedition to the North Pole, leading to a famous incident with a polar bear, before serving on frigates until 1777, when he passed his lieutenant's exam. His uncle, as controller of the Navy, actually presided over that exam. As Lieutenant, he served under Captain William Locker, a student of Sir Edward Hawke, who advocated bold, aggressive methods. Nelson later acknowledged Locker's influence on his own professional methods. So far, so normal in the grand scheme of things. After service in the West Indies, he married young widow Frances Herbert, born Nesbitt, in 1787, and spent five years on half pay. The Revolutionary Wars revived Nelson's career. In 1793, he was appointed captain of the Agamemnon, joining the Mediterranean fleet. There he gained a reputation for his aggressive tactics and became frustrated at times about the caution displayed by his senior commanders, particularly Hotham. The arrival of Sir John Jarvis helped Nelson's outlook. In April, Nelson was appointed commodore and was able to prove himself further. Cape St Vincent is a particularly famous tale in Nelson's inclination to throw himself into the thick of the fighting, and leading by example, joining a boarding party, taking not one, but two ships in the process, leading to comments in the British satirical prints and papers about Nelson's patent bridge for boarding first rate. Why was Nelson significant, though? Well, two words sum that up, really. Nile and Trafalgar. I'll save a full biography of Nelson's life for another time, because there's far more to talk about than what I've covered already. But the Nile and Trafalgar represented two of the most important reversals that the French suffered at sea during the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. By no means the only ones, but I would argue some of the most significant. Through doing the utterly unexpected at the Nile, Attacking an anchored fleet as dusk fell, taking them on the landward side despite the dangers of the shoals, Nelson not only caused a huge blow to the French ability to project their power through the Mediterranean, but left a French army marooned in Egypt, incapable of being reinforced and obliged to fend for itself when it came to supplies and equipment. Whatever hope there may have been, or may not have been, for Napoleon's campaign beyond Egypt, that hope died at the Battle of the Nile. That on its own, though, is not enough to make Nelson one of the most significant naval figures of the period. Trafalgar perhaps is. We've heard in fascinating detail from John Morwood about how so much of what we think we know about Trafalgar is just plain wrong. Yet as John himself pointed out, regardless of the fact that Napoleon had moved his army to fight the Austerlitz campaign well before Trafalgar, the defeat of the Franco-Spanish fleet on the 21st of October 1805, changed the wider naval strategic picture. It left France needing to replace huge losses, having been reduced to a second-rate naval power. It also galvanised the British population, not least because it removed the prospect of a French invasion for the foreseeable future. Yet there was also the wider strategic impact of Trafalgar. It left Napoleon confined to the European continent, whilst giving Britain the ability to strike wherever it pleased within reason. And there can be no denying that Trafalgar made later British success possible. Wellington was only able to fight effectively during the Peninsular War thanks to the dominance of the Royal Navy, whose command of the seas ensured that he could be regularly supplied and reinforced. Without Trafalgar, there could have been no Talavera, no Salamanca, no Victoria, and therefore ultimately, no Waterloo. And there is the wider legacy to consider, The long-term impact of Britain as the dominant naval power, able to project British influence across the globe, whether that was a good or a bad thing is a discussion for another day, that in turn facilitated the expansion of the British Empire. Regardless of your thoughts on that legacy, there is no denying that it was significant. You could justifiably argue, and I had this discussion with Andy Young during the episode on Most Significant Naval Event a few days ago, that Nelson... end point in the process. That without those who worked to build the navy, without those serving under him, without those at the Admiralty making the decisions on the deployment of fleets, Nelson would never have been in a position to fight a Nile or a Trafalgar. And that's true. But at the same time, whilst all those individuals played a key role in creating the opportunity, it took a particular type of person to seize upon and maximise the potential of that opportunity. That person was Horatio Nelson. His decisions, his tactics and his judgments turned the prospect of success into a reality and in the process made all the consequences of Trafalgar possible. Regardless of your views on the man and the recent and historic controversies surrounding his actions, his character and his opinions, some of which continue to be hotly contested, that legacy is nothing if not significant. Okay, well that... That brings us to the end of quite an episode thank you all of you for your contributions this has been an absolute riot um genuinely this could go one of four ways i i know i kind of mock um our our guests ever so slightly um, on these on these episodes when it comes to um putting forward some tongue-in-cheek questions but you've all made genuinely brilliant uh, suggestions it's made me really think, which is what I wanted, and I hope hope that it has made our listeners think. So thank you all ever so much for your time this evening. Folks will be able to vote for the outcome of this on Twitter. Find the vote, um, just search at Zed White History and you'll find it attached to the, the tweet that's about this episode. But before we go, as I mentioned at the start, it is a certain somebody's birthday. So, folks, if you are listening, please take a moment, fill a glass and then raise it to our good friend and podcaster and all round just genuinely seriously nice guy um, who spends a lot of his time working for free to entertain us and does so in a brilliant fashion. Josh, many happy returns, happy birthday, my friend. And I hope you've had uh, as good a birthday as you can have in lockdown. And I look forward to the point at which we can all get together and celebrate properly. Cheers.
4: Yes. Uh, Thanks very much, guys. I appreciate it. My pleasure.
2: That brings us to the end of Naval Month. As ever, I want to take a few moments to say a few words of thanks, to reflect, and to make a couple of exciting announcements. Firstly, and most obviously, a huge thanks go to all of my guests over the past four weeks Jamie Goodall, Nick Kaiser, Paul Martinovich, John Moorwood, Josh Proven, Callum Easton, Sam Jolly andy young jimmy chen and jacqueline writer i've said it before and i make no apologies for saying it again this show would be nothing without the input of my incredible guests it's their willingness to share their expertise their generosity with their time and their skill as eloquent communicators that result in the episodes that you all love so much throughout this month i've been encouraging you all to like share retweet leave reviews tell friends And boy, did you all rise to that occasion. I've kept mentioning that we were closing in on 75,000 downloads this month, but the analytics have been literally off the charts. More downloads than this podcast has ever seen. Almost 1,600 people tuning in a week. Nearly 3,500 downloads a week. Levels of engagement that the show hasn't seen since the massive Waterloo Remembered fortnight nearly 18 months ago when I rolled out an episode a day. We smashed the 75,000 download barrier. At the time of recording, we're at more than 78,000. The reviews that have come in from Apple Podcasts have genuinely touched me. They are honestly out of this world, and probably far too generous. Thank you all for your kindness and support. The show is going from strength to strength, thanks to you. As you know, I'd love to bring this kind of regularity of content more often, but until a time comes when I can make a living out of this sort of thing, I just can't bring you two shows a week. The Napoleon Assist will revert to the usual fortnightly episodes, but not for long. As a nod to all of my listeners, and particularly my patrons for their support, from January 2022, there will be a minimum of three shows a month. The format of that third show will vary. Sometimes a discussion, sometimes an interview, sometimes, perhaps a video tour of a particular section of a battlefield, or a relevant Napoleonic location. That last one is something that I've been working towards and working on the logistics of for a while, and to that end I'll be investing almost 800 quid, some of it raised from the subscriptions and tips, in vlogging equipment. I've always said that I will reinvest what is made from the Patreon account and the Kofi fundraising back into the show, and I mean it. The next step going beyond that is, of course, a drone for aerial battlefield tours, but that's going to cost about the same again, given that I will need to upgrade some equipment to make the drone function properly, so we'll park that for another time. As ever, if you want to speed the Napoleon Assist along, remember to like, share, subscribe and leave a review, and as ever, if you're willing to go that extra step, you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi or become a regular supporter via Patreon. The links are in the description and whatever form your support takes, know that I am massively grateful. A particular shout-out to my patrons, my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stouss and JC Kaiser, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Jane Davis, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone, Bob Burnham, Stephen Gillen, and Zach Golby, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Alexandra Leon, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Coss, an anonymous Canadian, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Indiana Fats, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Rob Griffith, Rory Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, and Stephen Colson. You guys are keeping the dream alive. You're the reason that the show is still going, and for that I cannot thank you enough. The Napoleon assist will return in a fortnight, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.